Hello and welcome to the Muni Lowdown. My name is Paul Graves and I'm the managing editor for Debtwire Municipals. Joining me today are my colleagues Seth Brumby, the deputy editor, Mary Ellen Ty, the assistant editor, and our head of municipal research, Greg Clark. So we have a number of topics to get through today. Um, but first, why don't we start with some trading activity, Seth, particularly with the city of Chicago. What's been happening there? Sure. So just so everybody knows, we track secondary market pricing through weekly research called Muni Market Movers, which is a collection or an aggregation of bid asks in the market collected by market. And we saw that uh, Chicago bonds really enjoyed probably the largest rallies over the past week. This is no doubt due to the fact that Illinois finally passed a budget after two years that had some very Chicago friendly uh, provisions to it, uh, one of which is that it does uh, allow some overhaul of the city's municipal and laborers' pension funds, um, which the city has been uh, pushing for for more than a year. Um, it also allows the city to uh, issue new debt with better security. And I think the market, by buying up and snapping up a lot of Chicago bonds, they're anticipating a lot of refunding over the next year or so. So I will say, just to, I guess just to point out a couple of winners, and this is all on pretty heavy volume too, um, you had a, lo a lot of taxable debt, general obligation that had really over the past week not risen so much, but over the past month they're up 15% and certainly are better than prices were last year um, prior to the November election, which if you recall there, seemed, there was a big sell-off in the municipal world. And I think a lot of bonds are trying to you know, claw back some of those losses. So Chicago debt has certainly... Uh, gotten back all those gains and then some. And we also saw um, in other trading activity uh, ever since the, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority deal fell apart. Sorry, I'm switching gears here now to PREPA. Uh, but these have definitely been losers over the past four weeks to 52 weeks. Um, ever since that RSA fell apart, the restructuring support agreement, there's been a massive sell-off across that capital structure. So there's definitely a lot of trading activity out in the market, um, some decent liquidity, particularly with some more high-yieldy and, and hairier credits. And for the uninitiated, PREPA, once again, is the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority. I know we use a lot of that acronyms here and abbreviations, so just want everybody to be able to keep up. But in other news out here in the market, take, taking a shift to Maryland, Purple Line, Seth. What's the latest with the Purple Line? So the uh, the Purple Line is a transit, uh, excuse me, a P3 transit project in the suburbs of Maryland, and it overlaps with the portion of the uh, metro in D.C., which, of course, has its own financial trouble. Uh, Purple Line has its own litigation trouble. It's not it's not even built yet, so you can't even say it has financial trouble. Although legal problems do become financial problems eventually. And there was some litigation around the project, uh, specifically around some environmental impact statements. And opponents of the project had won a series of victories in the district court. And the uh, proponents of the Purple Line had appealed all the way up to a court in, uh, at a federal appeals court in Washington, D.C. And they won a small victory earlier this week when the appeals court said to the proponents, you guys can continue going about getting your financing and your construction together, and you can continue with the uh, construction project and construction of this until we make a ruling. 
previously, the, the opponents of the project had won essentially a stay on the construction, which really threw a lot of stuff in, into doubt. But the appeals court decided to lift that stay, and now everybody in Maryland and the Federal Transportation Administration is pretty happy about that. That's big for the state because they were losing, I forget how much, every month. Yeah, I want to say, the, the figure I want to say was like 8 to $10 million. Yeah. yeah, something like that. It, it was pretty rough for Maryland. So I think that, and they used that really as their case for saying, you know, listen, if, if you don't lift this stay, you're causing harm to Maryland. So they went ahead and they lifted the stay to continue with the project. So that's not wasted money. All right. So let's move a little bit further south. Well, maybe a lot further south. Uh, down to Puerto Rico, Greg, uh, this month we had a quite a number of defaults that took place. Can you give us a little bit more color on that? Sure. Thanks, Paul. There were about nine or ten different issuers in Puerto Rico that defaulted on principal or interest or both uh, on or about July 1st. We had, we had seen this coming, and we weren't the only ones, but we had noted that this was likely to occur based on their debt service schedule historically and on the fact that they've started to default on different types of debt two years ago now. The defaults included general obligation bonds, which are which used to be the, uh, the most sacrosanct credit pledge that the uh, Commonwealth could offer. The default there was $395 million in principal and $360 million in interest. Of the total of the total $755 million, third-party insurance paid about $267 million of that. COFINA, the sales tax bonds, defaulted on about a million in principal and $16 million in interest. Other defaults included the first ever by the Electric Power Authority, PREPA, as we mentioned before, as we mentioned that acronym before. That was $104 million in principal and $141 million in interest. The uh, other defaults that occurred were on the rum tax bonds, hotel tax bonds, and the Government Development Bank. So the, uh, the, the big payments are January and July. So in August, there may not be much activity, although COFINA does have a big principal payment every August. So that's, that's one, one to watch. And Greg, you've been doing some other work regarding Puerto Rico. Care to share with us? Sure. We uh, just released, I should say the Forbes website just released a piece we had written on the budgeting process in Puerto Rico as overseen by the Federal Oversight and, excuse me, Financial and Oversight Management Board. That board, I'm either going to be calling it FOMB or the board as as I go through this brief description here, was created by the federal law, acronym of which is PROMESA, which was passed last year. And a lot of us thought that the passage of that bill, which gave the board the authority to approve Puerto Rico's budgets, was going to improve the budgeting. But we don't see much evidence of that. The reason this is important, well, every, everybody obviously knows that at, the, at least at the state and local level, you've got to run a balanced budget. For years and years, I'd say over 10 years, Puerto Rico had failed to do so. When they did fail to do so, they would borrow money to fill in the gaps, and that's one reason why they became so heavy with debt before they started to default on everything a couple of years ago. 
So again, it's not it's it's common for an oversight board, the ones that have operated in in other jurisdictions, such as New York or Washington D.C., to approve a balanced budget, but it's not clear that the board is taking its task seriously or that they understand budgeting games that are that are played by some people. Late in June, the board informed Puerto Rico officials that overspending in the budget violated the PROMESA law, and they, they suggested that employee furloughs might be necessary. The same day, the governor said, you can mandate a balanced budget, but you can't tell us how to do it. Three days later, the board approved a budget after adopting some revisions suggested by the governor's representative on the board. So you've got a pretty short time frame in which some pretty major decisions were made, and it makes one wonder how deliberative the process was, especially when you put all that together with some of the presentations. The official languages of Puerto Rico are English and Spanish. Spanish, they've represented this to investors more than once. And when you look at the FOMB website, the budget is all in Spanish. So unless you know Spanish, and I'm one of many people who don't, you, uh, you, you really can't analyze the budget. In addition to that, some other presentations are rather murky. Uh, one budget presentation shifted back and forth between a concept that the board called the consolidated budget and the general fund budget. And, and it's hard to say, it's, it's not always easy to tell which budget they're talking about. One of the controversial items is that they, the board approved uh, revenues, additional revenues of $924 million and reduced expenditures of, of $951 million. So you're looking at a close to $2 billion, which is a lot of money. And a lot of the revenues were unspecified. They just said they would raise taxes in some way. Well, that's not a way to, to really hold people's feet to the fire about what's going to happen during the year and, and as the year progresses. It's very hard to track that. And the same kind of thing happened as a rule on the expense side. You had items such as $45 million in additional expense measures. And, and again, that's something that is very difficult to track because it is so vague. So hopefully all of these revenue and expense items will, will occur as everyone, as the board and as the Commonwealth projects. But it, it seems that the Commonwealth is repeating some of its inaccurate budget practices of the past. And in all honesty, that could get them into trouble all over again. Yeah, that should be uh, something that we all continue to pay attention to uh, in regards to how the Commonwealth tries to navigate themselves out of this restructuring situation. And one of the initial steps that you're talking about, Greg, is having a budget that you can actually track and follow to see whether or not there's any difference between what they're budgeting and what actually happens. And it's really hard to do unless you have some clear itemized figures that you're looking at as opposed to, uh, well, we're just going to get additional 
subsidies, for example, of $50 million from somewhere. That's kind of hard to track. The other thing that can help, too, is all the it's all the litigation surrounding Puerto Rico. Certainly litigation never helped anybody, but it does help shed a lot of light on the issues that you're bringing up, Greg. Um, I know that there was uh, there's, there's another adversary proceeding filed today uh, in the Commonwealth Title III, as well as the Employee Retirement System Title III, based upon some of the resolutions that the Commonwealth had to pass in order to get the budget numbers to where we saw them. Um, specifically the, the liquidation of, of the employee retirement system for general fund. And you know, bondholders for the employee retirement system believe that that's their collateral. And, you know, th- their litigation is just ramping up, but I have no doubt that in all these adversary proceedings, of which there are many, we'll probably see some discovery process. In fact, one of them has already kicked off with uh, Bank of New York Mellon and, and the Puerto Rico Sales Tax Financing Corporation. Yeah, when there was the litigation a couple years ago against Walmart, there was a lot of discovery that came out there. I felt like that was one of the big takeaways from the case. It was not what happened to Walmart, but all the things we learned about. And, and all the transcripts that came out of that when they deposed uh, the GD president, GDB president at the time, uh, Melba Acosta, you know, all those testimony really, you know, let people know where those numbers were coming from. Super eye-opening. Yeah. So. Yeah, the judge's decision in that case, <clears throat> I think that judge has since retired but uh, his, his decision was, as far as these things go, quite enjoyable to read. Yeah, I believe that was a local judge, too. And if I'm not mistaken, the, the local judges have tried their best to get ahead of this litigation by essentially trying to carve out their own settlement. You know, their, their retirement system is obviously one of the ones that needs to be reformed in order to reduce your pension payments. And I think that they're trying to get a deal on the side with the Commonwealth ahead of all of the litigation, which in a normal Chapter 9 context for municipality, you can get away with. You know, if, if a debtor wants to settle with a creditor, it just has to bring it to the court for the court's approval, and creditors, other creditors and other creditor classes really have few tools to object to that. So we'll see how all that shakes out. And no conversation with on Puerto Rico, I should say, would be complete without a discussion of the latest lawsuits. Mary Ellen. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. So there was another municipality this week that sued the Government Development Bank. The Government Development Bank for Puerto Rico is the only entity so far to have the Oversight Board successfully say that they can go on with their Title VI restructuring, which is an out-of-court restructuring. And Cayaguas sued the Government Development Bank because of how that restructuring will treat municipal funds and loans. So that means that there are now two cities, Cayaguas and San Juan, that are suing over that restructuring. They're in different courts. Um, One is in the U.S. District Court for Puerto Rico, and the other one is in Puerto Rico's first court of instance. The arguments are slightly different. One has to do with how municipal loans are being used, and the other one has to do with how the property tax that is collected through um, the special additional contribution is being used. But either way, it doesn't look like that GDB deal is completely done. And it's a shame because the the GDB's Title VI restructuring is the only restructuring support agreement so far completed outside of court that the 
Financial Oversight Management Board has signed off as kind of a consensual agreement and to put it through Title VI, which does require some kind of judicial oversight in order to essentially cram down non-consenting creditors. But yeah, it, it is a much more amicable proceeding that I think a lot of people had to hope the Commonwealth could pursue with its other creditors. Uh, but as we see, even when you have all your creditors on board, there are obviously some other stakeholders who have some legitimate concerns. Uh, the municipalities in Puerto Rico are really the only entities, government entities in Puerto Rico, that are being required to maintain their liabilities at the same size and the same payment structures, um, while everybody else is, you know, you hope or are aiming to reduce theirs. And the fact that the entire restructuring department for the GDB is built on the backs of the municipalities, I think they have a problem with that, and, and, and that's a legitimate concern. I will say there is some irony, though, in the fact that the one agency that seems to be the closest to a consensual agreement is also, aren't they in wind down? Isn't the GDP going to go away soon? It's not going to be in existence, unlike PREPA, unlike, you know, PREPA, some of these other agencies out there. It was also at the center of a lot of their financial controversies, too. I mean, it's the GDB that consolidates all these numbers and reports them. Um, It's the GDB that's, you know, signed off on a lot of the debt and put all these structures together. So it's at kind of the center of the financial storm. But like the center of every hurricane, there's this calm in the eye of it. And there you have the GDB, which has its own little restructuring support agreement that hopefully everybody has played nicely and will get completed. And the GDP is also in the news for another reason, Mary Ellen. Today there was some breaking news about the Oversight Board. So the Oversight Board has eight members, one of which is designated by the governor of Puerto Rico, and that member can't vote. Um, so the current governor's designee, Elias Sanchez, resigned effective yesterday in an announcement today in the um, local newspaper. And the current government development bank president, Christian Sobrina Vega, will be taking over that role. Um, before he left, Sanchez had some some words. Greg brought up earlier the notion of putting in furloughs and Sanchez's sort of one of his parting words was, the government should sue the oversight board if the oversight board attempts to impose these furloughs. So clearly he's leaving, but leaving some choice final advice. Somehow I think we're going to be hearing about his name again, but I'll just leave it there and we'll see <laughs> as time goes on. But let's, let's shift gears completely because I know we talk a lot about Puerto Rico uh, on our weekly podcast because it's an historic restructuring in the municipal market. But there are other developments as well. Mary Ellen, Hazleton, Pennsylvania, Act 47, better known to some as the Roach Motel, because it's easy to get in, not so easy to get out. You can ask Pittsburgh and Scranton about that part. But what's going on with Hazleton? Yeah, so they issued a request for proposals from financial consultants to prepare an emergency plan to maintain operations. This would either be under Pennsylvania's Early Intervention Program or the Act 47 program. What's funny is that Hazleton did enter Early Intervention Program in 2012, but failed to enact any of the measures. So, Early Intervention really helped out a lot. (laughs) Yeah, now they can go into Act 47 having finished the Early Intervention Program. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Is that right? Yeah, like... In 2012, they were told that after five years, their deficit would grow to $6 million. Here it is, five years later, and they might not be able to cover payroll within the next six weeks. 
kind this of... This is the accurate, I should say, budgeting that Greg was talking about before, so they were pretty much on point there. Yeah, I'm pretty impressed, actually. You know, Harrisburg kind of started out the same way. Um, you know, they had a lot of recommendations to implement very early on. Uh, they refused to do any of them. A lot of it, I, if I recall correctly, had to do with political, dis- political dysfunction, which the state resolved by essentially installing a receiver in the city who got the deal done in about, I want to say, 12 to 18 months. So I don't know why we don't see receivers more often in, in cases like in Pennsylvania where you have an obvious structure for rehabilitating cities. But I guess maybe for Harrisburg, they just saw that as an extreme circumstance. Maybe because it was the capital, they wanted to get it in shape faster than city other in other city. I that's, don't know. That's perhaps. I mean, they 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 did try and file a chapter nine despite the mayor's objections. So <laughs> I, I think that they just wanted to have to assert some control of the situation, which was spinning out of control. Always difficult for a municipality once they get into the land of distress to kind of get out of it because uh, it's you can name a lot of cities that have gotten into act 47 you can't name nearly as many that have gotten out of it um so i think i think scranton's we'll, been in for about 20 years they entered it in 1992 well it's great i mean you get to raise extraordinary revenue and have some extraordinary powers and cutting your expenses who wouldn't want to stay there so apparently their goal is still to exit within three years so, what is the incentive? Hazleton's goal yeah. is to exit in three years, or Scranton? Scranton. I'm I'm not clear oh. on what the incentives are to actually exit Act 47 because you can issue debt while you're in Act 47. You can sell assets when you're in Act 47. So, what is the incentive to leave it? I haven't learned one yet. That was a rhetorical question. Yeah, it looks bad. Yeah, they could have issued bonds on day one of Act 47, which would have matured by now. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. They're that long ago. All right. Well, all right, everybody. So closing out another week. For those listening, hope you enjoyed our latest edition of the Muni Lowdown, and we'll talk to you next week. Take care. <laughs>